Okay, we're going to talk about the question up on the screen, does Christianity cause violence? Um, we will get into the, uh, just what that question means and what's at stake. It's not, it's not actually a very straightforward question. It might seem like it, um, but I think that's um, a result of the times we live in, if, if this seems like a natural question. But there's a lot packed into it. There's a lot of assumptions packed into it. We need to define our terms uh, and see what we're actually talking about. Um, but the, the fact that Christianity has caused violence or violence has been done in the name of Christianity is irrefutable. We're not, we're not talking about whether it has happened. I think everybody already knows that. Uh, we're talking about what's the cause and effect, uh, things like, you know, does it, does it inherently lead people to do to acts of violence? Um, is there something within Christianity that makes it uh, coercive? And uh, there's enough evidence that it's not a trifling question. It's not one we can just wave off uh, and easily answer. It's, it's one of these where we have to um, acknowledge what has been done in the name of our God, and we need to uh, be sorrowful and repent for what, what, uh, what's been done in, in the name of Christ uh, to other people. Um, so I'd like to, I'd like that to be clear out front. You know, we're not. Um, I'm not trying to whitewash Christianity today, uh, but we will talk about. I, 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 you know, I think the answer is no. <laughs> so um, th that we don't that Christians don't inherently uh, that Christian beliefs don't inherently lead to violence. Um, I'm guessing you all agree with me, more or less. Um, so we'll talk about what, what the arguments that are made. Again, that's kind of been my tack and ha how we respond to them. Uh, there's a couple of arguments that tend to get uh, trotted out really quickly in these kind of debates, especially in um, you know, social media type debates, uh, off the cuff uh, arguments. Um, one is that, uh, and, and these, are, these are things I'd like to avoid uh, and we'll try to avoid today. Uh, one is that, you know, that the violence done in the name of Christianity um, was part of an earlier medieval age, and those were all a bunch of, you know, power-hungry Catholics in in Europe, and they, you know, we had a Reformation, and now we're all better. Uh, that's. Um, Indefensible on a number of on a, on a number of fronts, uh, but uh, it does it does get that does get said. You know, we we figured it out. It's not a problem anymore. Therefore, we don't need to worry about it. Um, uh, I mean, one of the problems is that violence has not ceased. Uh, Christian violence has not ceased since the Reformation, by any means, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, also, you know what the whether we're Catholic or Protestant in these issues, 
it's one universal body of Christ, and um, when one member suffers, all members suffer, Paul says. So, um, in a sense, we need to we need to be accountable for um, the sins of the body of Christ, um, even today. Another uh, another issue that we tend to or another argument that we tend to make is. <clears throat> And I will actually make a variation of this argument, but not, not quite the same. Um, it's what philosophers call the uh, no true Scotsman argument, which goes, uh, to use one example, is no, no true, no, or no Scotsman uh, puts sugar on his porridge. And somebody says in response, well, my uncle's a Scotsman and he puts sugar on his porridge. And then the, the per first person responds, no true Scotsman puts sugar on his porridge, uh, which is to say, I'm going to take what, again, what philosophers call a counterfactual, something that refutes the statement just made. I'm going to define it out of existence and then use this as my body of facts to define what, what, I'm, what I'm going to argue. So you can't, you can't just say, uh, well, Christianity causes violence, or violence has a lot of evil things have been done uh, by Christians. And you say, well, they're, they're not really true Christians. So um, it's only good Christians that don't cause violence. You know? and, then, and then you get to go on your merry way. And uh, you probably just um, put yourself outside of that definition you know, in... Uh, there's a, there probably very few would make it into heaven if that were the case. So, um, I, I think there's an there's an element of truth to this, and we'll get we'll get back to it. But uh, it's a little bit it's a little bit um, nuanced in a way that d doesn't make that exact argument. So th those are two things I, I we'll be trying to avoid. Those are two the kind of two knee jerk reactions. Um, okay, so looking at um, this question, this, I came up with this question for this talk just as a way of sort of getting at it. It's not, I don't think it's actually the best formulation, uh, but it's, it's, the, it's the relationship between the two that I'd like to explore. And I wanna look at what, this is letter uh, C, I think on your, on your outline, um, what is actually asserted by the critics uh, when, when the connection between Christianity and violence or bloodshed or coercion uh, is made. Um, so the, the first is kind of what's implied by the question. I think I've got this on the PowerPoint. Um, that Christianity, by its nature, induces people to violence. Um, and we're going to kind of look at this in a series of sort of concentric circles getting wider and wider. The next one is that monotheism, uh, that is what, what are, have been called the, the Abrahamic religions, um, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, um, cause violence. And we'll look, I'll unpack why these are made in just a sec. Um, three, religion in general causes violence. And uh, you see we're, we're getting wider and wider, right? Um, and then the last one is 
anything that makes universal or absolute claims that is an ideology uh, causes violence. Because, uh, you know, in these arguments, you can say, well, a lot of, a lot of non-religious movements, communism, Nazism, have resulted in horrific violence. And they, you know, the argument is, well, they act sort of like religions in the way they work. Uh, so they're violent too, and we can lump them all in together. So it's not the fact that it's a religion, it's the fact that, fact that something uh, claims your sort of absolute devotion and loyalty. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna mainly stick with this first one, that Christianity uh, induces people to violence uh, and address that question. And we'll get at the others uh, kind of as we go. Um, and the, the formulation I have found that is actually, has actually been helpful is from an essay in this book that I've been using. I like to cite my sources. So this book is called Must Christianity Be Violent? It's actually an edited volume, um, and it's actually the proceedings of a conference that took place at Wheaton College uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, but Mark Knoll, who's a historian, um, at Notre Dame, he used to teach at Wheaton, he has um, an essay in here called, Has Christianity Done More Harm Than Good? And he looks at it from a historical perspective. Uh, he, and he's a historian of American religion, so he looks at it, he, a lot of his examples are um, more modern and more American. And I'm gonna, just gonna kind of follow his, the outline of his essay and uh, kind of embellish it and festoon it with my own kind of observations and other reading I've done. But just so you know, I, um, I'm, I'm gonna be following him in this book. And there's a lot of other really good essays in this book that address things like the Crusades and the Holocaust and um, those, those kinds of episodes in, in history. So the, the question, has Christianity done more harm than good? You know, that's, that's has it been on the whole worse or better for humanity? <laughs> Um, one, one would hope that the answer is it's been better, um, but that's not, not nearly ever assumed in our culture. Um, I, I also like the historical approach because it keeps you sort of tethered to things that actually happened. You can kind of fly high into the world of theory and make, make a lot of arguments, but um, if you're not actually touching on actual events that have actually happened in our past, uh, then you can sort of fly off into, into the stratosphere and uh, make a lot of arguments that sound plausible but don't actually have any relevance to what actually happened. So I, I like the historical approach. We'll stick kind of close to the ground uh, and sort of maybe go up into the atmosphere a little bit, but stay, stay, try to stay close. <clears throat> okay, so let's... Um, I want to de define a couple of terms. Um, so w what do we mean by cause? Um, so when we talk about monotheism, um, it's the idea that there's an all-powerful God. And you, know, and you see this, uh, people often point to like Abraham in the Old Testament and the sacrifice of Isaac. God tells him to do this thing. And since God is an all-powerful deity who knows everything, you must obey him. 
And so if he tells you to kill somebody, you must obey him because he's the all-powerful deity. Um, that, that's, that's, the, that's the argument that's made. And they all are kind of a variation on this thing, same idea. Uh, religion in general um, makes universal claims, as I said. So anything, if you have something that causes or that, that claims sort of your universal absolute loyalty um, and generates sort of passionate conviction in you, then things that, um, that disagree, uh, you know, they're perceived as a threat. Uh, and that sort of, and when that takes shape in in societies and groups, then sort of a herd mentality takes over, and um, anything that's the threat needs to be to, to the group's identity needs to be purged uh, and expelled or exterminated. <clears throat> and then. Uh, Often people will back off, critics will back off of even religion and say that so these kind of pseudo-religious ideologies like Nazism and communism, they have a sort of religious fervor and commitment to them um, in, in, the, in the degree of loyalty that they claim among their adherents. And so it's, it's sort of looking like a religion and uh, making similar claims to people's, people's identities and their loyalties. Uh, and what they view as truth and falsehood, you know, and so uh, in those cases, again, um, the 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 outsider needs to be to be corrected in some way, and that may be violent. Make sure that's yeah. There's one more, um, and then this is something that Richard Dawkins makes, famous um, atheist. Um, wrote, you know, The God Delusion, um, super belligerent, uh, evolutionary biologist by tra training. But he says that um, re religions that preach an afterlife, you know, if, if you die, well, you just go to heaven. And um, they, tend to, they tend to devalue kind of bodily, this worldly life. And so um, if you end up killing a few people, well, it doesn't matter. This life isn't the one that matters. It's the next life. Um, so it's, it's the devaluing of human life in the here and now that people say um, is the result of belief in an afterlife. Richard Dawkins made that argument explicitly after 9-11 because, you know, he, these um, people who are willing to kill and die for their faith, these Muslims, um, you know, had the promise of 72 virgins in paradise, so kind of popular version of... Uh, Muslim heaven. Um, so do these sound familiar to you? You've probably all encountered these in some form or fashion. And they, I think because of the world we live in, they seem sort of intuitive almost to us, right? Uh, they, it, it makes a kind of sense. And there's an element of truth to all of this. Okay, so that's cause. What about violence? What are we talking about when we talk about violence? Because there's a lot of forms. And there's one I'd like to define and spend a little time on just to sort of dismiss it um, and not have to deal with it as much. But it, it's worth addressing. So of course, physical assault is one form of violence. Um, the use of physical force, including you know technologies that, that inflict that force from a distance, guns, bombs, 
drones, whatever. Um, those are violent, even if the thing you're doing is pushing a button, you know, you're still inflicting violence on somebody. Uh, violence as threat, sort of an int intimidation uh, is, is a form of violence in order to, you know, get what you want through coercion. Um, and then this is the, the sort of postmodern option. This is one I want to um, kind of sit on for a little bit because um, for a lot of postmodern philosophers, um, starting in the 60s, um, with, uh, especially with a philosopher named Michel Foucault, um, he's a French philosopher, um, he made the argument that, you know, in the Middle Ages when you got on the wrong side of the law or the church, you know, the, you, you were handed over for, um, at the very least, excommunication, but it, um, typically it had to do with your body. You know, you, you, your body was punished in some way, maybe even by being drawn and quartered or something, something really grotesque and violent, or maybe you were tortured. Uh, and there are, you know, Human creativity seems to really flourish around torture. Who, who knows, like, why this? One of the, I think, one of the themes of this talk talk is <clears throat> humans are disappointing, <laughs> right? Uh, it, Christians even are disappointing. They and history is one long chronicle of bloodshed. You know, you, you it's it's sort of. To, to look at a question like this, you know, you got to go to some dark places. Uh, in, even in prefer, preparing for this talk, you know, it's kind of like, man, this is heavy. There's just there's just a lot of nasty stuff out there that's been done in the name of everything, uh, whether it's Christianity or some other religion or or just plain old meanness. You know, uh, that's that's the world we live in, and it's not the modern world. It's not it's not uh, something new. It's it's been here from the beginning. So. Um, but anyway, um, so in, in the Middle Ages, uh, punishment was a, a sort of typically a sort of one-to-one. -one. You, you, some kind of infraction of the law, your body was punished uh, in, in a very explicit way. There's there's one-to-one -one correspondence. You do this, this happens to you. Um, the, what the postmodern philosophers say is that in the modern era, this actually transitioned into a sort of um, system, not, not where it's a one-to-one -one correspondence, but um, discipline and punishment have been turned into a sort of self-policing thing that we do to ourselves. That's not, it's not done to our bodies necessarily, but it's a way that we, um, we learn through um, usually what they talk about is the in terms of the nation state. What it wants us to do, it gets us to do um, sort of from our own, fr from within our own uh, desires. You know, we want to obey. We want to um, stay on the good side of the law. And so they um, <clears throat> developed modes of coercion um, that help us to do that. And they, the, the Michel Foucault especially sees that as a very bad thing. Actually, the the med med medieval period when people were being drawn and quartered for him, you know, that's that's the good old days, um, because because there was this very explicit one-to-one -one thing. Um, now it's about there's a sort of what I would call here m manipulative coercion where um, they don't have to do that because 
uh, they get what they want by kind of disciplining you manipulatively to do those things that they want you to do. Would that be like education? <laughs> yeah, and he talks a lot about, uh, Foucault talks a lot about the prison system. And um, he talks a lot about this thing called the panopticon. So where instead of, you know, a prison where there's a lot of just barracks out in a row, uh, the panopticon, and this was actually a prison system um, developed and invented by a Britishman named Jeremy Bentham. Uh, but it, it, uh, the panopticon, uh, uh, so pan, opt, you know, pan is everywhere, and opt, optics, you see, uh, see everything. So that's the idea. There's a tower in the middle of the prison that has windows, uh, and every prison cell has a window that faces the tower, right? So they know they're always being surveilled. They can always be seen by the people in the tower. But the idea is you don't even need people in the tower. You have a one-way window where they can't see in. And <clears throat> if they know they're always being watched, they won't misbehave. That's kind of the idea. Um, so they're self-policing in this case. And it worked? I don't know if it was ever actually built. I th I'm sure it has been, but... Um, well, camera systems now. Yeah, yeah. In, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a valid observation of, of the way the modern world works. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of living in a panoptic society. You're, you're always... Uh, and we're sort of willingly doing it. You know, there's a, privacy on social media is a really big thing right now um, because you, they know a lot of things about us, and apparently the government can get its hands on it if it wants. So th those are sort of things, you know, and, and then I think, well, I better be careful what I say on social media. Say we're to put it yeah. So don't put this on YouTube, <laughs> right? I, I could be, could be the thought police, you know, come and get me. Um, it, so on one, on the one hand, this, this is a valid observation, right? You know, th these things happen, and it's it's destructive to the common good. Uh, on the other hand, they take these arguments. The, the postmodern philosophers take these arguments and say that any form of persuasion, or you know, they put this in, into the form of um, they apply this to marketing, advertising, um, a seeker-friendly church service would be violent, right? Branding that's manipulating your desires is violent. That, that, that's the idea. And violent in the same way that a person being drawn and quartered is violent. They make that very explicit. So according to, according to uh, thinkers like Foucault, like modern liberal democracies are just as totalitarian and violent as uh, actual dictatorial totalitarian governments, right? Which is, I think, preposterous. <clears throat> That's not violence. That's a, if it is, it's of a very, very different sort. Um, so I'm, I, you know, I, I'm kind of going on and on about this, but all to say, I'm not going to actually address this just because I think. Um, it's a thing that it's something that takes a lot of work to sort of get to that conclusion, and then I don't think it's a, even a very good conclusion. When we look at the history of Christianity, it's enough to just talk about what's been done to people's bodies <laughs> uh, in a sort of uh, actually physical assault type of way. So that that's what we're going to stay with, and I'm, I, I explain that just to 
kind of we're going to set it to the side and um, not treat it as a, as a valid sort of form of uh, addressing the problem. Okay. Any questions about uh, cause and effect or forms of violence? Yeah. You, you used the term postmodern several times, and I'm not sure I know the definition. Okay. Um, it, the question was, uh, what, what do I mean by postmodern? Um, since the 60s or 70s, there's been a lot of um, um, writing that questions the validity of reason. And they write very long, dense philosophical books to sort of question reason, question whether we can actually trust uh, that we can know truth or that there is truth. Uh, and so things, things inherently break down, and um, what we see are not, um, you know, like preaching in church would, would not be an appeal to the truth of God. It would be a power grab. Um, and, and society, they say, is, is built on just pure power and not, not truth or justice, you know, or democracy. These are all just things that we make up in order to oppress other people. That's, that's very generally what postmodernism is. Would secularism be a synonym for postmodernism? Um, not, I would say not quite, because secularism emerged um, with the ascendance of reason. Yeah, because secularism itself is a religion. Yeah, yeah. It, it has its own sort of religious uh, 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 kind of cr creeds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so a lot of people say postmodernism is just, you know, secularism or modernism and sort of at full throttle. So, so it's not, it, it, they're kind of slippery terms. But yeah, that's a, that's a good observation. And I guess I was reminded by, by uh, my mother to repeat people's questions. So RJ said uh, secularism is, is a sort of form of postmodernism and a form of religion. Um, okay, good questions and comments. Anything else before we move on? Well, all those thoughts don't, don't even address God in a sense. It's all from such a human perspective. You mean in terms of the, the, uh, the criticisms of... Yes, in Christian. the sense, yes, they don't address the character of God or who God is. Or no. It's just the idea of a God, sort of. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the people who say monotheism results in violence because you're, you have to listen to an all-powerful deity, they don't actually believe an all-powerful deity exists. Um, yeah. Or what kind of deity that is. Yeah, yeah, or whether, yeah. None of the, yeah, none of this even uh, addresses the teaching of Christianity, you know, whether it actually lines up with the things they're saying. It has anything to do with it. So, uh, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. It's, yeah. It perhaps could be stressed to someone that mentions this monotheism as cause. Uh, it perhaps could be stressed that tribalism has proved, the tribalistic gods have proved no more peaceful. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh, he, he said, yeah, the, the tribalistic gods 
pagan deities are, are no more peaceful than a monotheistic god. Um, we'll see that they're much less peaceful indeed. Okay, so um, kind of jumping into the question, has Christianity done more harm than good in terms of Martin Knoll's essay? Um, another another citation here. The other book I mainly have been working from is called, I'm not, I'm not crazy about titles like this, but it's called Atheist Delusions, uh, The Christian Revolution and Its Fashionable Enemies. It's by a theologian named David Bentley Hart. Um, and if, if you're interested in reading this, this is a stellar read. Uh, he's just, he's a really good writer. Um, a little bit sort of high level. I wouldn't say this is an entry level text, um, but it's not, it's, not, it's not super technical either. Um, and he, he addresses all of this kind of, and kind of frames it in terms of the large scale differences between Christianity and um, paganism or neo-paganism. David Bentley Hart. Um, now, if you go on Amazon and you search him, he, he's got a new book out arguing for universal salvation, which I'm not a fan of, so, um, but he doesn't, he doesn't get a, around to that kind of thing in here. So, um, but he is, he is himself an Eastern Orthodox theologian. Uh, he's American. He, I think he teaches at Notre Dame. So I'll, I sort of, I'll sort of be spicing up my comments with his, his uh, he's, he, he takes Dawkins for a ride you will not believe in the first chapter. He just kind of mops the floor with him. Um, he, his, his invective is very, uh, his rhetoric is just very, very explosive and he's very polemical. And when he's on your side, it's really satisfying. <laughs> when he's not, it's irritating. So. Um, okay, so Mark Knoll addresses in his essay uh, three kind of historical indictments of Christianity, uh, the Crusades, the European settlement of the Americas, and Nazi oppression of Jews. And what, what Christians have been implicated in all three of these in different ways. So uh, that, those are the three things he talks about. Those are the three things I'll address. I mean, and these are the three things everybody loves to talk about when they talk about these things, right? Um, another comment about history, as well as its being um, sort of darker and bloodier than we tend to remember, uh, it's also um, always more complicated, especially when something like the Crusades becomes, you know, a talking point. You know, these arguments kind of go, well, Christianity is a religion of love. And somebody says, what about the Crusades? And you go, oh, shoot, you know, I didn't think of that, you know, that you're right. Um, the Crusades were a mess, it's true. They were incredibly violent and they were a moral quagmire. I, on the, my way in, I defined quagmire for my kids, now I get to use it. Um, but it was just, a, it was a giant, couple of century long mess, uh, the Crusades. Um, and many things were done, as we'll see, that were, that were inexcusable. But it was also very complicated. And, you know, in those arguments where, you know, crusades get 
lobbed out as as sort of the first volley, and you know it's usually. Uh, hits pretty close to center, and you, there's not much you can say. Who among these has actually read any accounts of the Crusades uh, in our in our arguments? Probably not many. Um, <clears throat> and if you do, it gets boring really fast because, like I said, it's complicated. <clears throat> but I will give you a little historical background so we can have some things to say. Um, the first Crusade was started in 1095 by a pope named Urban II. He received appeals from uh, Eastern Christians just not long before the, the Eastern Church and the Western Church had anathematized each other. Um, so they didn't really like each other at this time, but the Turks, the, the, the Seljuk Turks, Muslims were, um, they had already taken the Holy Land. They were threatening Constantinople. So there was still a enough goodwill left between the Eastern and Western, the, you know, the Pope in Italy and the, the Eastern Christians in, in Constantinople. There was enough goodwill that, you know, he could make an appeal, help, you know. And um, Urban II said, sure, yeah, we'll help. Not only will um, it, you know, will our, our sending soldiers over there uh, quell the, the Muslim threat to us as well as them, but also we can um, take back Jerusalem and the Holy Land and ensure um, access to these holy sites of our religion so that we can make pilgrimages. And actually the knights who the first crusaders thought of themselves not as crusaders but as pilgrims. Um, crusade comes from the, the Latin crux cross and they tied um, the image of the cross onto their, onto their uh, or they sewed it onto their um, shoulders. And so they had images of the cross on, on, and they saw themselves as holy warriors, you know, going and and um, and doing, doing God's will. Um, so, so the the reasons for going were, were actually quite noble. Um, and if you look at, so, so, a lot of what's assumed in you know lobbing the crusade hand grenade into the culture war battle. What's assumed often is, uh, by, by the sort of culture critic, what's assumed is a bunch of violent Christians went and assaulted all of these peace-loving Muslims in the Holy Land um, who were just trying to kind of live their life and practice their religion, which is not at all true. The, the crusades were a, sort of a centuries-long counter-offensive to take back land that had been violently taken from the Christians. So the, for the first uh, six centuries of Christianity, um, like Jerusalem was an exclusively Christian city until the Muslims showed up. So, uh, you know, if you're a pacifist, then they were doing wrong. But uh, taking back stolen goods in terms of Christian just war theory was a, was a a legitimate reason for going to war. So they were, they were trying to take back their own lands. Was, it was how they thought of it. Um, however, a lot of um, just kind of violent loving, violence loving warriors um, and plain old charlatans joined up on this, uh, on, on the, these crusades on the way and um, sort of were impatient to get to Jerusalem before they started hacking and burning. And so they started attacking Jewish settlements along the way uh, in Turkey. Um, and when the Eastern 
bishops tried to intervene, they attacked them too. So there's some, something went very wrong <laughs> uh, along the way, uh, and and they just they just a, as they got further, they just got more and more kind of um, um, indiscriminately violent uh, in in what they did. Ten ninety five was the first crusade, uh, and there was something like maybe nine crusades in all, but. Um, and the sort of knight for God, the, the like knight with a K, was a, was a sort of recent invention in, in, in the 11th century. Um, so the fact that you could be a knight at all and be a Christian, you know, was a sort of relatively new idea. But they got to Jerusalem, um, and they did take it back, but I would just like to read this excerpt from one of the uh, one of, one of the accounts, which is uh, it's I you know I'm gonna I'm trying to put it in context a little bit for you, but I'd also like you to know that it was really like there was a lot of evil done in the name of Christ. Uh, so here's here's a a passage from a sort of first person account. Then the Franks, that's the Christians, <clears throat> entered the city magnificently at the noonday hour on Friday, the day of the week when Christ redeemed the whole world on the cross. With trumpets sounding, with everything in an uproar, exclaiming, help God, they vigorously pushed into the city and straightway raised the banner on the top of the wall. All the heathen, completely terrified, changed their boldness to swift flight through the narrow streets of the quarters. The more quickly they fled, the more quickly were they put to flight. Then some, both Arabs and Ethiopians, fled into the Tower of David. Nowhere was there a place where the Saracens, that's the Muslims, could escape the swordsmen. On the top of Solomon's temple, to which they had climbed in fleeing, many were shot to death with arrows and cast down headlong from the roof. Within this temple, about 10,000 were beheaded. If you had been there, your feet would have been stained up to the ankles with the blood of the slain. What more shall I tell you? Not one of them were allowed to live. They did not spare the women and children. So it was incredibly violent. And these things are, in many ways, inexcusable. Um, nevertheless, the Crusades are the only explicit holy wars fought in the name of Christianity, where people went to war as a defense of Christian faith, thinking, you know, God was fighting for them in a sort of Old Testament way. Um, the, if, if the Crusades are it, that's a pretty good record in, in the big, big scheme of things. You know, what they did was inexcusable, but um, in, the, in the grand sweep, if if the Crusades are the only kind of holy, holy war that Christianity has ever fought as, as a religion, <clears throat> all in all, that's actually a decent record if you're comparing with other religions. Hey, Jeff, in your reading, did you ever run across that they were promised, uh, they were promised forgiveness and pardon for all their sins that they fought in this war? Yeah, it was an act of penitence. Uh, yeah, RJ was asking if, if they were promised forgiveness, forgiveness and reward if they fought. Yeah, it was very much an act of penitence. Um, another thing you'll hear <coughs> excuse me, 
is that you know they went crusading for plunder and for riches, and actually almost every knight who went, number one, experienced incredible, incredible privation and hardship on the way. That many, many, many of them died uh, on their way to the Holy Land just because it was such a rough journey, thousands of miles. Um, <clears throat> they also bankrupted entire families and fortunes in order to do this. It was, it was very much a religious undertaking, not for profit. <laughs> it was a not for profit endeavor. <clears throat> 501c3. But yes, it was it was an explicit act of penitence uh, uh, in order to you know kind of it was conceived of as a, as a good work to go crusading to go on on pilgrimage really. Okay. So even so, it was it was a giant mess. Um, the next, uh, and we'll get into sort of the responses to these in a little bit. Um, uh, I won't take quite as long on, on the next two, but um, the European settlement of the Americas. Um, if you if you read it, um, if you if you if you read the accounts, even the even the Puritan treatment uh, of Native Americans was horrendous, uh, and, and in the name of a sort of. Um, Exercising God's punishment on them, you know, they would. There was one. There was there was one. Um, the first, I think, uh, head of Harvard College, which was established as a as a Christian school, um, was a, was chosen because he's a very gentle, godly, patient man, and this this they thought this would be good for training up ministers and and the next generation of leaders, and he was very sensitive, and he had been through a hardship himself. Uh, and he was this wonderful, gentle, godly man. And then they, they went to war against the Indians, and he was the chaplain for the, the Puritan army. And um, they came to an Indian village and basically just burned all their houses down onto their heads. And he wrote that this was God's punishment for them, on them, you know. So and this is just one little example. Um, I think we're all pretty familiar with the kinds of things that happened <clears throat> in the name of Christianity and sort of manifest destiny. Um, also in the uh, in in Central and South America, there was raping and pillaging and and looting and stealing uh, at an, to an incredible degree, um, often often in the name of um, sort of bringing them into, European civilization. You know, if they if they resisted, well, it's for their own good that we destroy their culture and their lives. Um, <clears throat> um, I guess I have a question. Yeah. How does that differ from like, when the Israelites took their home? Because mm -hmm. God gave them that home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well... Um, and I'm sure there were some idiots in the crowd that did some bad things to you. What? Sorry? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so the question is, how, how is this different from the Old Testament when God has given Israel the land? Um, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, well, for one, no explicit 
command had been given to the colonialists to, or the colonists to take this land, um, for one. Uh, number two, in, uh, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the, the idea of um, a land for the people has been, in essence, spiritualized into the kingdom of heaven, which is not here in its fullness for the taking. Um, when, when Christ comes back at, at the second coming, there will be a sort of um, reconciling in which he is given every, all things, you know. Um, but in the meantime, um, it's not our job to appropriate lands for Christianity in the same way it was where the, the old the Israelites were given an explicit command um, to, to take this land as, as God's elect people. Is that going to help? And, and yeah, I, I have no doubt there were, there were uh, people in Israel who had impure motives as well, <laughs> uh, within, w even within the divine command. Yeah. And, and to buttress that point, I, I think Jesus in a couple of places said, um, if my kingdom was of this world, my followers would fight for me, <laughs> but I am not of this yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. and, when he, and when he, even when he, after he's been raised from the dead, Jesus, now are you going to establish your kingdom? The disciples ask. No, 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 you still don't get it. <laughs> it's not a political thing. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, David said that Jesus said in a number of places, "My kingdom of not is not of this world." If, if it was, my my disciples would fi would fight for me. Um, so yeah, it's it's it, there's no there's no country post Christ event that that represents God's kingdom on earth. There's no like kind of socio-political entity that that does that in the same way that Israel did um, before Christ. And if there was, we'd probably be in exile, just like they were. Um, okay, la last major example is the Holocaust. Um, there is much lamentable evidence of of Christian anti-Semitism in our history. Uh, many of the church fathers, especially one otherwise very wonderful theologian named John Chrysostom, um, was, he said, very hateful things about the Jews. I don't know, I don't think he was ever physically violent, but he was sort of metaphysically violent <laughs> uh, with them. Um, Martin Luther, a very godly reformer, some of the things he said about the Jews would make your, your hair curl. It's, it's pretty horrendous. And um, even the Lutherans, you know, they say those things we, don't, we do not, we, we reject categorically Martin Luther's anti-Semitism. Um, he, ha he has a work called On the Jews and Their Lies. <laughs> um, so you can't, you, can't, you can't deny that. And um, somehow Nazi Germany arose from within this Christian milieu. Yeah. Was there was there a dislike for the Jews based because the Jews crucified Jesus? Is yeah, you know, there's, uh, they, they rejected the Messiah. Um, you know, that's, th that's one thing. And then, you know, the, the uh, label Christ killers 
has a long historical pedigree from within Christianity, uh, which is sad, you know, because Christian theology is not the Jews killed Christ, it's that we sent him to the cross with our sins. But So it's bad theology, but it, it, has, it has cropped up again and again and again throughout history. Um, <coughs> yeah. Um, so uh, Mark Nolan, his essay talks about, if you go to the, this was 2002, so it's, I think, I'm not sure it's still the same, but there was a, there was a um, video that kind of introduced you to the exhibits at the um, Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. called Anti-Semitism, and it makes a really strong lock between Christian identity and Nazi atrocities. Um, and actually, there have been some, he talks about a coalition of Jews who actually went to the museum and said, look, it's not that simple. Um, it's, you're, you're talking about it like it was a Christian thing um, explicitly, and it, it, it wasn't. But I, for our purposes, you can't deny that there has been much Christian anti-Semitism, and, and it is one among many factors, at least, that, that resulted in... This, this is a little offside, aside, but there's a book called I Cannot Forgive, and I think it was a Jewish guy, and he went through the Holocaust, and I believe he could not forgive the Jewish leaders because he says they sold out their people to save themselves. That was, that was part of the theme of his book. He could not forgive the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders, um, they, they, to protect their families and their they, lives, they, they, you know, they knew what was happening, and they allowed Hitler, you know, they didn't get their people to rise up and tell them. I see. They yeah. said, you know, do this, you know, go on this, you know. Just they, go along with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's, <clears throat> I read a novel called, uh, by a Jewish guy named Michael Shaban called The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Yeah, but he talks about that same thing, you know, where they just kind of went along with it. And it was, and, uh, but I, I feel like that's sort of the, the, the sort of criticism a Jew can make about his own people that I can't, that, that their leaders kind of sold them out. Um, yeah. So he can complain about the Mennonites. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so those those are the three things. Um, I, now I'd like to talk about what uh, Mark Knoll calls three kind of mitigations. Uh, three, uh, something that mitigates is something that holds back. Um, so three, three three kind of mitigating factors um, about these these episodes. Um, one is um, much of the evil done in the name of Christ or Christianity uh, is not actually the application of Christian principles to to um, whatever is happening, but is actually um, e e explicable in terms of you know the historical and cultural particulars. Uh, I think a lot of when when I hear this one, I think a lot of um, the troubles in Northern Ireland, which are Catholic Protestant struggle, which are very violent. Uh, and are done in the name of Christianity, but it has more to do with um, nationalist politics than it does with with Christian doctrine or or, or Christian.
principles as outlined in the New Testament. You know, uh, one of the things Martin Knoll says is, when you look at when you look at these episodes, um, read the Beatitudes, and ask, is is this an application of the Beatitudes? If not, they're not really acting Christianly. And this is what I'm talking about. Uh, this is what I talked about earlier, the, the kind of no true Scotsman argument. They're not acting Christianly. But I think the, the, uh, the disconnect is they're not acting on what Christians actually believe we should do according to our ideals. They're failing an ideal, which is not actually... The fact that we hold an ideal and don't live up to it, that's sort of part of the Christian message. That's not a refutation of it, right? Uh, we're saved by grace. Um, So, uh, and on top of that, you know, there's nothing about, uh, there's nothing unique about the things that have been done in the name of Christianity that have not done, been done by uh, other, other religions or other ideologies. Yes, I mean. I was just thinking of the point of if someone thinks Christians are violent, just ask, would you feel safe in a room full of Christians? Yeah, yeah. That's a, in some ways it, Kind of depends. That actually came up in something I was reading in preparation. But yeah, and sort of it depends on what Christians and where, you know. But um, usually, yes. Yeah. I would hope so. Oh, and she said for you, you kids at home, uh, she said that w- would you feel safe in a room of Christians? Um, one would hope so. Um, the second mitigation, I guess I've, oh, no, I don't have it. Um, and this is sort of building on that. The, 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 the evil done in the name of other religions and or ideologies is actually much, much worse. And sometimes when you look at, you know, the evil that Christianity has caused, um, to strip Christianity out of that culture and ask what it would have been like. I think one of the most harrowing examples of this that you can find is um, pre-Christian Britain, which is kind of hilarious because... Uh, Stonehenge and pagans and Wiccans, you know, they're all kind of cast as this sort of peace-loving nature religion, which is, oh man, some of the stuff I read, just, I was, uh, my stomach almost turned with the the, uh, the horrific practice of their religion. Um, I don't have time to get into it, but, uh, you know, it was basically a warrior culture, the strong-ruled um, and at the expense of the weak, um, they were huge. Uh, like these, these, especially the Germanic tribes <coughs> in pre-Christian Britain, um, were six 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 eight. Their skeletons have been found um, to support a frame of like two hundred fifty three hundred pounds. These guys were massive, and they think that it was actually this way because of eugenics. If you had a weak baby or a female baby, you killed it. Um, so they kind of self naturally <laughs> self selected their tribe to be the strongest that they could be. Um, women were basically slaves, uh, sexually and uh, otherwise. Um, human sacrifice was pretty standard, um, and if if a major warrior died, you know, the, um, <coughs> often his wife was required. It's sort of like. Um, sort of like in India, to kind of throw herself on the funeral pyre um, after being gang-raped by the rest of the tribe. So it, the, the, 
this is what it was like when Christian missionaries came to England. So this is the, this is the druidic nature religion uh, that so many people find sort of fascinating and lovely, um, which is kind of beggar's belief. So um, that's one one issue. One issue. Um, yeah. Related to this mitigation, to uh, one touchstone that's easily proven because you can research it on the internet and. and get quote out of various historic documentation, but there's a touchstone phrase that documents that one of the alternate ideologies of communism in the last 100 years, since 1919, atheistic communism has killed more civilians in peacetime, undeclared wars, this is just killing people in their own societies. Mm -hmm. The governments of communism killed more civilians in peacetime in the last hundred years than all of the people killed in all of the wars in all of human history before 1919. Mm -hmm. and, and that touchstone is so powerful that it can act as a very strong defensive mitigation yeah. in, in these discussions. Yeah, yeah, actually, the Marxism, communism. Yeah, so yeah, the next thing I was about to say. But, but that is, yeah. you know, we no longer have to estimate or guess. It, it is, well, the Black Book of Communism documents it, and many other mm -hmm. uh, historians have documented that phrase. And it is so powerful that it can, re it can just knock uh, a sneering cynic off of their yeah. pedestal uh, yeah. when they're criticizing the yeah. Crusades of a thousand years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually, the, I have a quote here from Mark Knoll who's summarizing something in the black book, communism, and it's very similar, uh, but a little more specific. By the time Lenin and the Bolsheviks had been in power for only five months, they had deliberately liquidated, that is murdered, more human beings than had been put to death by the czarist regime which they overthrew in the century before 1917. So in five months, they, their body count was higher than the entire syst oppressive system that they overthrew. Um, uh, that Marxism is just one example. It, it has more blood on its hands than I saw. <laughs> I saw a Twitter exchange. This, this is a couple weeks ago. I mean, did I maybe say this? I don't know. I, I said it a lot to a lot of people because I thought it was interesting. But somebody said, somebody on Twitter, you know, um, some probably young, starry-eyed communist, said communism is about. Love. It's about love for your fellow human being, and you know, blah blah blah. And somebody responded uh, with a very kind of Eastern European-sounding name. Uh, responded, "Communism loved 50 million people to death in my home country." You know, that's that's about that's about the long and short of it. Okay. Um, um, but you know, I. I'm, I'm no more interested in, in getting into Muslim smear campaigns than any other good liberal-minded person, but um, if, if you're gonna talk about other religions and violence, you have to bring that in. And there have been, in the 20th century alone, many attempts to just flat out exterminate Christian communities throughout Africa, throughout Turkey, um, many other places in the world where that, it, you know, it's not a sort of just take your stuff and go home. It's we're, we're gonna we're gonna destroy your community. Um, North Africa was Christian for seven centuries. 
it's not Christian today, still. Um, so also that, that kind of pokes a hole in the persecution is good for Christianity um, sort of thing. It makes people more, there's a certain element of truth to that, but also think about North Africa when you say that. It was Christian for seven centuries until it wasn't after the Muslims took over and it still isn't. So um, there's Hindu caste oppression. Uh, as an example, another religious example of kind of systemic oppression. Um, Nazism was actually a, more of an explicit rejection of Christian principles. They were sort of a crude application of Nietzsche's philosophy where um, Christianity is a slave religion. It's a weak religion and uh, a true, their, their morality is, is based on weakness, you know, turning the other cheek, whereas uh, for Nietzsche and the Nazis who were kind of cons consciously appropriating him. Nietzsche was well before the Nazis. But, um, you know, for him, the, the, the man who was the, the, the ubermensch, you know, the, the overman or superman was the, was the one to emulate, who was able to um, kind of take the will to power in his own and do what was necessary um, to further humanity. So um, I don't, to, to say that the Nazis were sort of applying their Christianity was, was actually not true. Hitler actually suppressed Christian uh, resistance to, to his rule. Um, the third, uh, third mitigation is that um, to be able to critique uh, the failings of the West and Western civilization and the Christianity that's uh, appropriate, uh, that, that's a part of it, um, takes a sort of moral grounding that comes from specifically Christian principles. The idea of the freedom and liberty of the individual human being and the dignity of every person born is a Christian principle. And you can look at pre-Christian societies, non-Christian societies, where this has not, where Christianity has not leavened the society. Every individual does not have dignity. And now that we're in a post-Christian society, we're getting there again. Um, if you're in the womb and you're not wanted, you do not get, you do not, you're not awarded that kind of dignity. Um, so to be able to criticize Christianity as, a, as, as, as culpable for violence, you're, you're actually using Christian teaching to do that. Um, okay, That's, those are sort of defensive points. Um, I won't kind of take the offensive here a little bit. Um, the first of all, first of all, is Jesus was a peasant Jew on the margins of Roman society um, who welcomed the poor and the oppressed. And when Christianity gets used wrongly as a tool of the powerful to, to oppress the weak and cause violence, you're betraying the actual ideals of our founder who lived as a poor person, who chose, you know, God could have come as anybody, and he came as this, somebody, to, something to teach us. Um, I'm just going to kind of take several examples of what Christianity has done. Um, do you know that, do you know that hospitals were invented by Christians? Uh, by Basil of Caesarea in the fourth century, he had a thing called the Basiliadad, which was uh, a sort of hospital city, you know, before this, that was not the case. You 
Uh, the sick and the weak were sort of, maybe they got some medical care, but um, often left to die. He, he got hospitals and had people um, there to care for them. That, that's where actually hospitals began. Was that the Hospital of Tears? There was a, a group of crusaders known as the Hospital of Tears, I know. Uh, I don't know. This was well before that, uh, but this was sort of a, as an outgrowth of Basil's sort of monastic ideals, you know, a community where people are taken care of and live out the gospel. Um, Christian witness in the face of communism, again, um, has, was, has been incredible. Um, many Orthodox priests suffered and died for their faith. Um, Solzhenitsyn, if you've read his Gulag Archipelago, is dedicated to um, chronicling the suffering and the evil uh, that, the, that, the, that the Soviets were committing. Uh, and people have said, you know, if there's one document that brought down communism in Russia, it's, the, it's that book. Um, and he was bolstered by his Christian faith. Um, Christian, sol or, uh, sorry, <coughs> Polish solidarity was fueled in, in communist-occupied Poland was fueled by the Catholic faith. Um, John Paul II emerged out of that, that kind of uh, context. And then the last one, like I've said, um, <coughs> in a lot of these episodes, um, when Christians have been guilty of violence, it's often the, the, the first people to speak up in defense of the oppressed are other Christians. Um, in it, when, you know, I was talking about the Puritans kind of warring against the Native Americans. Um, it was the Quakers and actually the Mennonites who first spoke up against, against oppression in colonial America. Uh, also in, in sort of Mesoamerica and, and the, the Columbus's um, colonial endeavors, uh, the, the, um, there was another scholar and colonialist named uh, Bartolome de las Casa, I think, uh, who, you know, if you read him, you're like, oh, that's, I wish he would have been Christopher Columbus. You know, he did it right. And he was, he was, he excoriated the people who were plundering and killing and raping and pillaging um, in their own time. Even the bishops and the, and the crown back in, in, um, in, in, in Spain, they, they were sort of like, don't do this. A lot of this was not done in the name of the church or done explicitly in violation of the church's um, commandments or, the, or, or even the, the crown's commandments in Spain. Okay, I, um, I want to move on to number three, um, uh, Roman numeral three, this is zooming out on history. Um, I'll give you three, what I have decided to call very unscientific graphs. Um, if you can read that. So these quotation marks are um, from, these quotes in the boxes are from David Bentley Hart's book. Um, he says, here, this is the kind of modern view of Christian history and um, what we would expect if, uh, if this were, if the modern view of history were true. We would see, you see at the top of the kind of vertical axis, justice reigns at the top, the bottom, reign of terror. So before Christianity were the glory days of Roman imperial order, violence of religion was moderated by the prudent hand of the state. So, oh, glory days. 
uh, medieval period, ah, down at the bottom, reign of terror, prolonged period of fanaticism, cruelty, persecution, and religious strife. And then, oh, modernity, slow reemergence from the miserable brutality of the age of faith into a progressively rational, more humane, less violent social arrangement. That's sort of the way we, and you know, so I think a lot of us tend to look at it that way and just be like, oh man, shoot. But that's not actually how it happened. And it's an oversimplified view. Again, it's always gonna be more complicated. But I would like to stay, um, you know, D David Bentley Hart has a couple, several pages in here about the wars of religion in the 17th century. And he's a very good rhetorical persuasive thinker, right? So he goes on for like four pages of just very boring politics in France and, and Germany. And I think you, you're supposed to get the point. It's really, really complicated. It's really complicated. And, uh, and then he kind of emerges from that and has some things to say. But um, the, I think he doesn't ever say, you know, it's just complicated. He actually shows you kind of how the, these things were working. Um, but so I don't have a like different graph where, you know, it's more like an arc where good in the medieval period and bad other times. But that's sort of what's saying. But here's very unscientific graph number two. Um, the, the sort of medieval period was uh, a long back and forth between the church and the state. And so every time he says, this is still Hart's idea, but every time the state is trying to claim sovereignty over especially the kind of the moral world of the people um, from the church, violence goes up. Violence goes up. Um, and th that's, not, that's not a perfect arc through the Middle Ages. It's a long back and forth that eventually the state wins, right? Um, so, here's, so here's very unscientific graph number three. Um, so you got justice, peace, and charity at the top, total war at the bottom. Rome, not, not, not great, but not, not bad either until it became a dictatorship again. But early medieval Christian society was actually very peaceful, very peaceful. Be, uh, like before the Crusades, um, the church had a say in putting a check on um, excesses, moral excesses, whether they were violence, whether it was sex. You know, we, people believed what the church was saying. They believed it to be, they be, believed Christian ethics to be true. And so they, they were willing to uh, be disciplined by the church, not, not through torture or, um, you know, ec, uh, uh, death, but through a system of penitence and, and um, kind of re-entry into um, good faith with, with Christianity. Um, and it was as it became less, less uh, peaceful as sort of the state and the, and the, the kings in Europe became more and more um, power hungry. So there was a long back and forth between the church and the state, but early medieval society was actually very peaceful and characterized, you know, their, the animating principle of society was love. You know, that I would not say that that's the characteristic of our, our society, the animating principle. Um, but then you get the modern nation state, which has been just total war almost since, it, since its beginning. The 20th century at least has, has been, uh, when we've finally liberated, or emancipated ourselves from the authoritarian tyranny of the church, <clears throat> we get the two most destructive wars in the history of the human race. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, I think that speaks for itself. And uh, 
if Christianity causes violence, which in summary it admittedly has, <clears throat> the sort of emergence from Christianity into a post-Christian culture, which we have, um, is even scarier. Uh, I, th I think we don't, we don't realize how, how much good that a sort of baseline ethic of Christian love does for a society. Uh, it, it doesn't make saints. Saints are saints because they're outstanding, right? No, you can't baptize a culture and everybody becomes a saint at once. They're still going to do evil things. But um, the amount of restraint that put on the natural inclination for human violence is, is actually pretty stunning, I think, when you look at, when you look at the long arc of, of Christian history. So um, I'm about a minute over. Uh, any... Don't ask me about any numbers for these graphs because I don't have them. They're just sort of visual representations of um, Hart's argument. But any other any other questions, thoughts? Thanks for coming. Have a good week. <laughs>